This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From award-winning masterpieces to festival-fresh gems, movies you've been dying to see or ones you've never heard of before, there's always something new to discover. For a limited time only, during the Cannes Film Festival, you can try Mubi for three months for just $1. Till the end of the festival on May 25th, go to mubi.com slash filmcomment to claim the offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmcomment for 90 days of hand-picked cinema for just $1. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Diamantino, winner of the grand prize at Cannes Critics Week and an official selection of the 56th New York Film Festival. This gonzo Portuguese comedy hits theaters starting May 24th. Check out the latest issue of Film Comment for our thoughts on the new streaming service, Ovid.tv. Through the end of May... Listeners can use the coupon code CAN to get 50% off monthly subscriptions and watch Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast Live. I'm Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Uh, and I'm joined by Jonathan Romney. I do uh, a weekly film of the week column online. Amy Taubin. I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment. And Eugene Hernandez. I'm the deputy director at Film at Lincoln Center and also a publisher of Film Comment and writing about the festival here in Cannes. Yes, we're. I'm kind of spoiled by having people who can uh, file <laughs> quickly. Uh, so, you know, you'll see dispatches from, from Eugene. Um, Jonathan ha- has already written about Baccarat, um, which we'll definitely talk about here. Um, and, and Amy has done, done a couple of interviews. But actually, the films are so good, we, we might hold on to the interviews for, for later use. Um, but without further ado, um, let's jump into this particular podcast, which the general idea is looking at Cannes from a kind of historical pr- perspective, a kind of big picture view uh, it's kind of a, a rat race, uh, you know, day to day, you know, your mind gets wiped from a combination of sleep deprivation and, um, you know, a baguette overdose and, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I mean that literally I just have so many sandwiches here. Uh, it's the only thing I can rely on. Um, so we want to kind of step back a little and just talk a bit about films that we think are, are going to, uh, to sound grandiose, maybe the films that'll stand the test of time or something, or, or also just films that really, really struck us personally in, in some way. Um, but I, I do think it might be nice to begin with a recent couple of screenings, just because they had, they kind of, you know, they kind of recreate the scene in, in Pulp Fiction with the adrenaline shot, I think. Um, I, yesterday, uh, uh, the, the latest film by Quentin Tarantino, um, Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood, and uh, also, I have to argue, uh, the Bong Joon-ho film, uh, Parasite, um, which, uh, I mean, in terms of suspense, was just a more, you know, it, it was, it's a totally different film, but, you know, keeps you on the edge of your seat and I think is, is just, as, has just as much of an impact. Um, so maybe we could just start with those and, and what's important about each of those. They're both filmmakers that have been at Cannes a number of times. Um, Bong Joon-ho was here uh, two or three years ago with Okja, um, uh, where a streamer whose name will go unmentioned uh just because i don't want it to overshadow the director uh, uh you know was distributing that film but it showed it showed here 
Um, and also Tarantino's last film, I don't know, here was uh, Inglorious Bastards, I think in 2000, sure. Um, so it's been a while, um, but he, there, he's kind of royalty for his 1994 uh, Pulp Fiction uh, A-Claw. But I'm talking too much here, so I'm gonna hand it over to you guys. What did you, what, how did these movies strike you? Do you think that they're gonna last further than just you know waking us all up for a moment? Jonathan? Um, well, I love the Bong Joon-ho. I wasn't that big on Okja, although I've been a fan of his for a long time. And he made a very strange, sort of slightly, you know, unbalanced and, and maybe misconceived sort of international uh, science fiction drama um, before that called um, Snowpiercer. Um, this film sees him firmly back in South Korean home territory and in the kind of sardonic slightly more than slightly twisted black comedy that he specializes in um it's uh he he and tarantino have something in common that they both um issued uh requests to critics right. um, not to uh give away spoilers and certainly um in bong's film you know there are so many twists and they're so ingenious but they also fit beautifully into the overall conception of the film. You know, nothing is gratuitous. So I don't want to give away too much, but it's about um, a family living in a kind of slum district in uh, what I assume was Seoul, who come to work and basically invade the home of this super rich family um, who are very kind of spoiled and extremely gullible. And, you know, it would be unfair to reveal more about that. But the other star of the house, uh, the other star of the film is this extraordinary house, which has been designed for the film, which is this elaborate piece of modernist architecture with massive spaces and, and kind of, you know, shiny surfaces. And this becomes the arena for basically... Um, class war in a really fascinating way. And when I reviewed it, actually, this hadn't occurred to me, but someone someone else pointed out, and I saw this the next day, that it's very much a kind of South Korean version of us. Not that they are, you know, the parallel people, the undead, but they, they are people who have become the underclass, but their, their ingenuity and their energy and their desire to, to basically live in this kind of really sort of Darwinian fashion, sort of propels them into, you know, a whole new life. And then things get weirder. And, <laughs> and I just found it incredibly exciting yeah. and just ingenious. And, and it has this bleak, you know, poisonous sort of satirical charge. Um, I think in some ways it, you know, it sort of says more about um, the current economic situation than, than the loach even. But um, it's also done with a kind of, you know, Hitchcockian precision, which just completely bowled me over. Well, yes, us. <laughs> us is what I thought maybe five minutes into the film. And oddly enough, the backstories are similar in that uh, Jordan Peele was his inspiration for us is something that happened to him when he was a student at Sarah Lawrence College. And he had a feeling that he was being followed through a dark tunnel, not by the very wealthy residents of Bronxville, New York, but by someone who looked just like him. Um, and, and you're talking now about Jordan Peele. Right? Pardon? You're talking about yes. Jordan Peele right now, yeah. Um, 
Bungs, apparently, the idea for this film came to him when he also was a student in college. And so there is something about being from a not particularly wealthy background, but, you know, pretty much in the middle, and going to a kind of elitist school and being haunted by the people who have not arrived there yet. That has inspired these stories, which are very much alike. And just geographically, they are upstairs, downstairs stories as well, because there's a very significant staircase in the Bong film. I think, it's, I think it's one of his best films, if not his best film. I think what the PR is saying about it being a totally new direction is not quite true, but it's a fusing of the uh, social comedy and very rigorous Marxist social comedy uh, with a little bit of the sci-fi trappings of the other films. And I think it's one, for me, it's one of the best three films I've seen. The other are Celine Sciamma's Girl on Fire and A Portrait of a Young Girl, on, Young Woman on Fire, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the Jim Jarmusch film, which was the opening night film, and probably shouldn't have been because that placed it at a severe disadvantage. Do you think it, it, it suffered from the kind of scrutiny? It's a terrific film. It's one of my favorites. Also, Amy, Jim Jarmusch's film. And do you think that that level of attention at the beginning kind of puts it in an unfortunate or unfair place? Yeah, I mean, I think that opening night films here are usually films that will be popular with the audience that dresses up and goes to opening night. (laughs) And they're usually, I mean, unless you're assigned as a critic, you don't go to the opening night (laughs) film here. So this was a film that was very different in that sense. It's definitely an art film, and it's a comedy, and they want to have a comedy, but not necessarily a comedy that would appeal, you know, I mean, it's not a romantic comedy in any way. So I think it was a disadvantage. Yeah, Yeah, it is interesting how that can make a kind of difference about how you read the films here. Because as an opening film, you're kind of waiting for something light, maybe, um, but if this, if if dead, um, the dead don't die showed during the festival, you you might people might have been more open to the slow burn in it and might have taken that as kind of almost a, an art house flourish rather than him doing I don't know some sort of just deadpan version of of a, of a zombie movie or something. Um, so that is yeah. Last year was everybody knows was the opening, which we can pass over in silence. I think there have been a lot of opening films that. Should be past that, and have been over the years. Yeah, it's just, it's true. It's they true. Have stood the test of time. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they stood the test of the first two days of the festival. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the the just sticking with uh, with uh, Jar- with uh, Jarmish actually for a bit. One thing that does is is interesting to me is how American filmmakers are received at, at Cannes, um, and and the role that Cannes has in or or does not. Uh, in curating like American filmmakers and, and that sort of thing. And, and I, I, I was because, you know, another movie in competition was The Climb, um, which also also a, a comedy, a, a kind of a comedy of enervation, I guess, and not a movie I loved. And I just began to think, what would it look like 20 years from now if we went back and said, what American filmmakers was can interested in, you know, putting out there and, and chiseling in stone somewhere? And I just can't imagine that that film sort of. Well, not to beat up on the climb, but it's it's, it's pretty funny. I mean, 
No, I, th- I think the new American filmmaker. I mean, the climb was was very nice and and very much fitted into a kind of you know sort romance bracket. The climb was uh, a misogynist atrocity. Well, you know what it reminded me of in a way. It's I mean, it is definitely you know that's what it's powered by uh, misogyny and and it's kind of. I think um, struggling with that, but it reminded me of one of those Henry Jaglom films from the late yes, 80s. And, and have they stood the test of time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think yes. the new American discovery this year, well, not, not mm. entirely a discovery because his first film, uh, The Witch, was a discovery a few years ago, but Robert Eggers is the person to watch because his film, The Lighthouse, is just devastatingly good and it's black and white. Um, it looks like it's shot in kind of charcoal. Uh, it, like, it looks like it's etched in charcoal and, and very black ink. And it's about two men, played by Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, manning a lighthouse and driving each other crazy. Um, and it's psychological horror in a very kind of Herman Melville vein. In fact, they use a lot of Melville and other texts in the film. Did, did yeah. you see it? Because I just no, thought it was a real it. discovery and stylistically... It's just, yeah. you know, on fire. And the two performances are great. And and Defoe just kind of, you know, it's a real kind of tabaki chewing performance. Yeah. And and it's very funny as well. And he knows he's kind of playing it up and, and it's just delirious. It's yeah. good, really, really good. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, that's that's a film, in a way, that's one of the sort of films that I like to come to can to see. Just this kind of total going for broke vision of, of something. Yeah, let's just put... Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe in a lighthouse. Let's let's shoot it in a totally square frame, so you just feel like you're locked in them, locked in there with them the whole time, and and let's just watch them go nuts. Um, I don't know. That's that's my idea of a good time. But but it's interesting you say that because it is it is a movie that's at the same time kind of very austere. You know, Jonathan, as you were describing the the the, the color, the lack of color scheme, and but also um, kind of baroque in the way people talk and and just the kind of visions that people have um, and people take really the long way to, to going nuts in the film. You know, um, we always talk about directors and auteurs, but uh, one thing that can is, another thing that can is good for is solidifying the careers of actors at different points in their life. So Defoe is here not only in the, this film, which I haven't seen yet, but in a film that almost no one has seen because it's out of competition, Tomasio and um, by Abel Ferrara. And it's a very, very good Ferrara film, if you are a Ferrara fan, with a lot of control. Um, Defoe has worked with him in six films, and I think this is one of their best collaborations, and the performance is really stunning. Uh, so he has two stunning performances, which will undoubtedly help him worldwide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question I wanted to get back to for a second, which is that question of, I don't know, 10 years later, looking at what, what, were, American, what were the American films oh, yeah. like at this festival. And I was just thinking as everybody was talking about um, three whose directors' names I don't even know yet because they're sort of new voices. And I, if I had maybe made a note to myself, but thinking about Bull and Port Authority and The Climb, and maybe what we might think about a few years down the line is sort of who was telling different, who was telling stories at this moment in 2019, from what vantage point those stories are being told and why. And that's something that I've been 
really trying to find the time to kind of think through with these three films, the climb was really difficult for me for the reasons that have already been mentioned. I just didn't want to be necessarily in the world from the perspective that I was seeing this story told. And, and it was, so it, it, it turned me off. I was into it for a, for a, a, struck, a period of time, maybe 15, 20 minutes, just uh, kind of formally watching how it was composed, these different shots. And then I, was, I just got more and more repulsed by the kind of being in that world that I ended up kind of just shutting myself down. Mm. Um, in the, and, and, and I probably will have to revisit it again to sort of just maybe, maybe think through why that is. But in the case of the other two films, Again, I think that there, there are really interesting point of views being explored, complex point of views that maybe uh, make me question sort of who is telling a story and why. I mean, I think in the case of Port Authority, um, I wanted more uh, personally to, to see more from the vantage point of the trans character who's exceptional in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, and and yet the the camera often drifts back to the, to the, 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 the straight white guy who wants to inhabit her world and who's aspiring to be in her world. And, and it was interesting to me to think about why and how he becomes, uh, or he thinks he's sort of more marginalized. He's the outsider. Um, mm -hmm. Again, so I want to think that, think that through. Uh, we talked about Bull on the first day of this podcast oh, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and, and despite some reservations that we explored, I think there's just really something really interesting at work there in, in the way that this, um, this young woman is, is explored. So, so, you know, maybe, maybe this moment will give us, if we look at it, you know, years from now, um, an opportunity to sort of see some of these, these broader topics about representation and viewpoint that are obviously being explored in our country right now. I think it's really odd that any of these films are here, maybe with the exception of Bull, which is, I think, a very good first film, and you have no idea where she's going to go from here. Um, but What's she, the director's name? Uh, Danielle Lesowitz. Yeah. yeah. And she um, really has talent. Um, but Port Authority is just... I mean, I have no idea what it's doing here. This is a film by a person who doesn't know how to direct actors, doesn't know how to edit, doesn't know how to write, doesn't know anything. And on top of it, as Eugene said, is showing this potentially great trans family and a lot of marginalized, vulnerable people because they're very, very poor. From the point of view of this white kid who's going to go back to Pennsylvania or wherever he went and probably have a decent life. And why on earth are we seeing that? But Han has always been weird about American films. And sometimes you think they want to show them just to show how not progressive America is. <laughs> and that's why they're here. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I know there it's, yeah, th th those, both of those films are also programmed on, I think the first or second, pretty early on or, I showed really early on, um, so I don't know what that what that means really. Um, but uh, just kind of going going on from 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 that, like it's interesting when you have these those movies offer a particular kind of realism, a particular way of seeing the world, uh, which means a particular way of portraying the world. And um, that's why I, w I also want to talk about an, another couple of filmmakers who are are um, kind of can stalwarts, and that's the Darden brothers. And and that's kind of the the I don't know the the accepted form of, of realism. This kind of rooted in I mean a kind of perfected version of a French kind of social realism that they have that has um, you know elements of you know grace in it uh, a redemption um, and they just keep on 
you know, racking up the, uh, the, <laughs> the awards here. But it's funny that it, that that's, that's what's kind of more successful here. I mean, I love the Darden brothers, but it, and it's interesting to see that this year they didn't seem to make as much of an impact with their, their film, uh, young Ahmed, which is about a 13 year old, maybe, um, a kid in a school who's, who's when the movie starts already seems more or less, um, plunged into a kind of, uh, I mean, I'm not informed enough about Islam to say, but definitely is already tending towards a more radical version of, of Islam in terms of what he does with it. Um, and it's a movie that is over very quickly. The whole movie is done at a run, which is true of a number of their movies, I guess. Um, but I'm curious, why do you think that's a movie that didn't really seem to catch fire here? I think it's a movie, I mean, I like this movie a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I had to go back and see it again because frankly, I fell asleep. Um, and I, it has nothing to do with the movie and everything to do with sleep deprivation. So I did go back to see it again, and I think it's really good. I think the reason that people don't respond that well is that clearly the indictment of the movie is on this particular country. There are other countries like it and the kind of political and social system that will make this kid into an absolute victim. I mean, he has, it has nothing to do with him uh, personally, his, this terrible story that happens, and has everything to do with not being able to think through what can possibly make a society with that much difference in it not be murderously dead detrimental to some people in it uh, jonathan did you see that um i didn't see it and actually oh. um I, I you know i do want to see it but i think i've suffered from darden burnout over the years i mean i am i'm a great fan of their films and actually the last one uh the unknown girl um i didn't like that much here and then when i saw it again it had been fine-tuned they'd made a lot of you know, very, very fine cuts, which had, which had really kind of tightened it up. And it was, it was, it was a different film. One reason I wasn't in a hurry to see this is partly because of that Darden burnout. Also because I'd seen this theme, you know, the question of radicalization and young people um, embarking on jihad treated in European cinema a number of ways over the last few years, not terribly successfully. I don't think anyone has quite fathomed the mystery yet. And the last version I saw this was by André Téchiné, and I think one of his least interesting films, and it was in Berlin in February. And, and that's why I didn't see it, partly because I knew that there are some films I won't get to see again, mm -hmm. some films I would definitely see. Of course, I will see the Dardens in a few months, but yeah. I just felt um, maybe not yet. Eugene, did you catch the Dardens one or not? I did, I did. I was, I was really captivated by this kid. Um, I think that that's what really carried me through. And it is, the movie kind of ends so quickly, you know, the, the, it, it builds to something that, um, that I guess we're not giving away, we're not spoiling movies here, right? right. You can no, only talk about the first 10 minutes of the movie for now on. <laughs> um, but it, it, it builds to a, um, a happenstance, something, something happens to our lead mm -hmm. character that has happened to other characters that they've uh, yeah. covered, that they've explored in the past. Um, and uh, and it's a jolt, and but everything leading up to that is is this movie has stuck with me, um, and I think what happens with what is hap what seems to ha have happened or is happening with this film is that perhaps because of the Darden burnout that some people feel because the film is is short and sort of seems like it might uh, we might sort of 
know where it's going or what it's doing. It, it, it doesn't um, necessarily demand from, from some people the kind of that moment of, of thinking about what they're exploring and why and sort of what this kid is representing yeah. and what he's, what he's telling us. And I think um, it was enough for me to watch it once to, to actually want to see it again and to actually want to think more about it because yeah. I think that they, it's funny to have a festival where we sort of take, uh, take these, these, these filmmakers for granted. Right. Um, and it's, it's kind of a great luxury at the same time, right, to have these great filmmakers working and that we're able to kind of take them for granted. Um, but also I think what often happens and it happened with their last film is we kind of come back to them. We kind of come back um, after we're out of the heat of this moment and we can think about sort of what, what we saw, what we were told and, and sort of what we might uh, yeah. take from it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, a movie that came to mind when we think of what we might take for granted here uh, is the Terrence Malick film to a certain extent, just that, I mean, you know, I feel like only a, a, a can could like a, a new Terrence Malick film somehow be, I mean, there are fervent adherents as there always are. And I, I won't talk about it too much because I already got into a bit of a dust up on our last uh, podcast. Jonathan, you're looking at me I, I will talk about it briefly because I, I really hated the Malik. And the reason I hated it is... I hate the Malik too. Good. I mean, a lot of people... I think I have no problem with the idea... You know, apparently there is a debate going on. People are talking uh, on Twitter and no doubt elsewhere about the idea that he is a Christian filmmaker. And I think there is certainly room and need for, you know, religious filmmaking about World War II. Um, I think this completely falls on its face. And the reason is because it's about a kind of secular saint who uh, apparently is based on a true story about a man living in the mountains in Austria who says, no, I don't want any part of Nazism and I will continue to say no. And he is a conscientious objector, but he's living among, you know, the glories of nature and the waterfalls. And I mean, it really is kind of climb every mountain, but every single bloody mountain. And, um, and you know, the skies and the clouds, you know, and the miracle of the world. And then um, he is imprisoned. But the, you know, the weird thing about it that, that I couldn't believe, now this may be based on a true case and Malik may have the evidence, but he needs to persuade us that this is plausible. And I was not persuaded. I thought the logic of his story was this guy would have just been marched off and shot. But no, he is taken off and put in a prison with various people. And he languishes there for a while. And then Nazi officials take him off and sit him down in their office and say, you know, I think we need to have, you know, a 10-minute debate about the theological aspects of this. Well, I couldn't believe this at all. And I, it, it feels to me, you know, he was aestheticizing the suffering of World War II. Uh, it feels like a pious rather than religious film, and indeed a kitsch one. And after three hours, I was not only bored rigid, but I was very, very angry. Um, yes, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, I mean, the iconography of this film, we have seen it now in Malik. It's in every single film, and it is... Get it. Okay. It's not worth talking about. Okay. But and when I came out of it, I said there is no way to argue this film because there will be believers. They will be Christian believers who believe in the sanctity of this guy's sacrifice. And that's all that they will think about. And I can't argue, you know, I can't argue religion and I can't argue an intelligent version of religion as opposed, you know, <laughs> Malik just seems to me these days like the worst version of American transcendentalism. I mean, this is the failure of American transcendentalism as a philosophy. So, 
Yeah, I, I think it's that's 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 the final nail in in, in the coffin. While the masters of international cinema grace the closet, Mubi brings the best of Cannes to you. This month, stream highlights from the festival's past with Mubi's annual Cannes Takeover series. This year's impressive lineup includes Palme d'Or winner Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, as well as Amores Peros from this year's jury president Alejandro González Iñárritu, plus career bests from Cannes heavyweights Gus Van Sant, Hirokazu Koreeda, Takeshi Miike, the Darden Brothers, and many more. Plus, if you sign up during the festival, you'll get three months for just one dollar. From now until May 25th, go to mubi.com slash film comment to claim the offer. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment for 90 days of great cinema for just $1. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Diamantino, winner of the grand prize at Cannes Critics Week and an official selection of the 56th New York Film Festival. After blowing it in the World Cup, soccer superstar Diamantino embarks on an odyssey involving evil twins, Secret Service skullduggery, mad science, and giant fluffy puppies. The Hollywood Reporter calls it the kind of out-there plot that John Waters might have concocted had he ever taken an extensive screenwriting holiday on ecstasy in the Algarve. Diamantino opens May 24th at Metrograph before expanding to select cities. Avid.tv is sure to be your favorite new streaming platform for documentaries and independent films. Their selection is huge and includes work by Claire Denis, Wang Bing, Chris Marker, and Patricio Guzman. From now until May 31st, listeners can head over to www.ovid.tv and sign up with the coupon code CAN, C-A-N-N-E-S, at checkout to get 50% off the monthly subscription price for three months. That means you get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Maybe uh, we should talk about the anti-Malik. The anti-Malik. Oh, yeah, the anti-Malik. <laughs> yes, well, tell me about the anti-Malik. Uh, well, he's he's the least transcendentalist filmmaker in America, perhaps in the world. I've got to say, I've I've been bored rigid with his cinema for years. I, I think I enjoyed a bit of um, Inglorious Bastards. I enjoyed parts of uh, Kill Bill too, and otherwise I've been kind of indifferent. This film, for the first two hours, I thought was absolutely mesmerising. It just kind of exuded pleasure and his kind of film law obsessiveness. You know, it was just explosive and it's funny and, um, you know, Al Pacino comes. I think at one point he, he, he does these kind of comic strip sound effects. He goes kind of bing, zing, shum, bam, which kind of almost outdoes his hoo-ha routine. And he was just, the whole thing is really enjoyable and DiCaprio is, is just really kind of touching and... Uh, Brad Pitt as this kind of laid back kind of stuntman, you know, who, who actually looks weirdly like like he's, you know, with his aviator shades, he looks like Scott Walker in the 1970s. It's very, very strange. But it's really fun. And then comes the final act. And, and at that point, and of course, spoiler warnings if you haven't seen it, at that point, <laughs> it goes the full Tarantino. And I just threw up my hands in despair because what he's doing, he's taking a very, very horrific uh, real life incident. And he's kind of, he's sort of magicking the hurt away by turning it into cinema and particularly his type of cinema. And I just thought, you know, he's living in some sort of bubble which you know i didn't really want to have anything to do with at that point but the first two hours boom bam boom. <laughs> yeah it, i mean it's it's a movie where 
you know, he often, people often say, you know, he makes movies about movies and, and often the enjoyment is just watching him pull off these, these kind of twists and, 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 and on, on, uh, you know, the previously pre- previous shocks and thrills of, of films. And, you know, he still has the kind of narrative, uh, uh, you know, whipsaw kind of, you know, um, a, approach here. But for most of the movie, it's actually, I, I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was just kind of settling in and then sunbathing for a while because you're just watching kind of a buddy comedy, basically, or even, not even a, what was a comedy, just two guys, uh, you know, DiCaprio and, and, and Brad Pitt. As him, Brad Pitt is, it's, it's also funny because he's really just his gopher. I mean, he's supposed to be his, his stuntman, but really he's just there to give him emotional support. Um, so I do prefer it to the climb, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is I was I was really kind of delighted by it, and it's a movie that's just continued to 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 soothe me. I I I have a different read on 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 the um, what happens later. But Amy, what did what did you take away? Well, it's hard to talk about it because it really is important not to talk about the last quarter of the movie. Uh, yeah, the last forty minutes of the movie. It's two hours and forty-one minutes. Uh, so I have exactly the opposite read. I thought there was about an hour of this movie, the last 40 minutes, and a couple of scenes earlier that all involved the same aspect of the movie that were really great and really showed that Tarantino knows how to structure tension, how to make actors in a scene act and react and do actions and react with each other. And the rest of the movie, there were about two hours that they were just kind of hanging out and doing their thing about, you know, 50s bad television, and which bores me silly. Um, and I don't want to go out and look for all the references of television I never watched and never want to watch. And so Brad Pitt, though, is remarkable. Yeah, but I you, mean, he is just, just remarkable. You, but, um, and DiCaprio's okay, but Brad Pitt is—that's a remarkable. I, I mean, it kind of depressed me though. There's one thing. I mean, in this film, Tarantino absolutely proves that he is a master of pastiche. And there's uh, a kind of World War II action movie in here called *The Fourteen Fists of McCluskey*, which is so much better than *Inglorious Bastards*. But um, it also made me realise, God, this guy has spent a lot of his life watching lots and lots of terrible movies that you can't imagine were worth watching, you know. I mean, there's one thing about being, you know, completely omnivorous cinephile, but just he watched all this stuff, you know, it really depressed me. Yeah, and that's what's very depressing about for me about the movie. At one point there's... Uh, a Rolling Stones song that's used really ironically in terms of what's happening on the screen. Yeah, Out of Time. And I um, thought, I listened to that song. I actually was at several concerts where that song was sung, and it wasn't depressing in this way that this movie is. The, the late 60s and early 70s weren't this totally drab, depressing Thing full of bad movies and people wearing incredibly bad clothes and saying stupid things to each other. It was kind of horrible, the 60s, because of the war and the war at home, but it also was great. And I don't know, I mean, you know, he was only six in 69, but um, it must have traumatized him and he just 
looked back and saw the whole period as being schlock, which it really wasn't. And, and the terrible thing about it also is, you know, well, he clearly really hates hippies and, you know, who could not hate the Manson family? Although, actually, um, Mary Harron, in her recent film, Charlie Says, um, does, you know, it, there is a sympathy for the devil. I mean, she does that film very beautifully um, and opens up something else in the story of the young women in the family. But um, he, he clearly doesn't like hippies and the film is from the point of view of these two um, kind of reactionary movie guys uh, in this sort of Hollywood bubble, which is kind of breaking apart. And uh, the idea that there was something else going on in American cult- culture at the time, counterculture, it's sort of, you know, that's passed over in silence. There will be, there's a critic who will be nameless, whose review I read this morning, who said... Well, now we all know that somehow the Manson family is in this movie, somehow. And uh, who said his portrayal of the young women in the Manson family was a kind of his his foregoers of feminist harpies today. Yeah, I haven't haven't gone to Tarantino for, for political cinema per se so much, but that's interesting. Um, but we're we're running into the final quarter of our of our, our event, and I, I'd like to get some questions if anyone has any, um, because you know usually we're just in a bunker somewhere recording a podcast, so it's just us hearing ourselves yammer on. So I would love to hear if, if anyone wants to ask our panelists anything. Uh, yes. Uh, hi, I have a question for Amy. Uh, you mentioned earlier Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and personally, I love that movie. I wanted to know a little bit more about what you thought of it. Oh, I I thought two things about it. I thought it was a great love story. Um, and it is a love story that's been told very often with between a male artist and his muse. And to see, this is set in the 18th century, and to see one, it is one of many unknown female artists, painters from that period who forges a mutual love relationship with her subject, who she's painting, uh, so that this painting will be given to the future husband of this uh, uh, young woman. And the two of them fall in love, and I think that is just remarkable. It's also, I think, a remarkable view of history and unknown history about women in that period, often, often very isolated from the men who run their lives, but able to have a certain kind of freedom, if only for limited time. And I just thought it was great. Yeah, nobody asked me, but I also adored it. Um, (laughs) But uh, just quickly, because I I like that they really are able to create their own world, and that's not an easy thing to do. They create this kind of, they're on an island, that's a really interesting setting, that, uh, and they more or less kind of create a kind of bohemian utopia that's most, I think is all women, it's just men who ferry them there and then, and then and that's, that's it. Um, so I think it's a wonderful film. Also interesting because the director is also you know, a writer, a screenwriter, and I feel this is a movie where kind of she, she brought all her power, they kind of all came together in a way that they hadn't. Um, I think it's an incredibly elegant film. It's a very moving film. Um, it creates a, a, a sort of its own version of the 18th century. I don't think it, it claims to any kind of historical accuracy, um, but it's a sort of chamber piece. 
Um, it's very, very finely drawn. And, you know, I, I think there are so many kind of resonances there, um, not just in the relationship between the two women, um, but also in, you know, what it says about the functions of art and the idea of the portrait that she's painting as a kind of object of exchange, which allows the subject of the portrait also to become an object of exchange. It kind of certifies her as a chattel. And, and so the artist is in this sort of, uh, compromised position. Um, and it's also about a great film about someone working on a deadline. You know, she takes her canvases. She's got six days to do, to do this painting. Um, but fantastic performances. One of the things you, you, you asked us to think about when we came here was, um, how these films have resonances of past can titles. And one of the things that really struck me in the opening shots of this on the boat and when they arrive on the shoreline, suddenly I had this kind of flashback to the piano and it definitely has the same sort of strangeness that that, that an, an enchantment, I think is not, not unfair to use that word. Um, fantastic performances by uh, Adele Enel, who's, who's an amazing actress, always looks, even when she's smiling, she, she always looks kind of angry and this is her, her great thing. And um, someone who is new to me, who I, I what's, I can't uh, yeah. and it'll come back to a bit, but brilliant, brilliant, um, you know, equal force. Um, and I think it's a highly likely and would be a very rewarding Palm d'Or. I think it's an extraordinary film, the real subtlety and elegance. Yeah, and the last thing to say about it, I mean, it is the anti-blue is the warmest color. Uh, it is a great lesbian love story. Uh, with quite uh, explicit uh, scenes of lovemaking that, and it's a kind of miracle how she did it, that seem not at all exploited uh, in terms of how the camera sees them, which is just really amazing. Well, it's not really explicit, but what you do get is one extraordinary shot yes. of an armpit. And I've, you know, I, I don't, I can't think of any films which have used armpits in the same way, but it's it's quite beautiful. Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of aestheticization of war uh, in films with the Malik film you were talking about? And I was just kind of, I seem to recall this happening with Hollywood cinema in the last few years with some, some reaction to something like Shutter Island with DiCaprio again, in terms of how that, that genre kind of uses the Holocaust, yeah. it's kind of a spoiler. And, and then there's like this, like, you know, Mac, Michael Fassbender's Magneto kind of going back to destroy Auschwitz in, in one of the X-Men films recently. Yeah, yeah I, I have a real problem. I mean, I actually visited Auschwitz just a few weeks ago for the first time. And I, I you know, I saw things I'd, I'd actually never heard about before, which kind of shocked me in a way that I didn't expect. I mean, I expected to be shocked, but there is something now. Claude Lanzmann, the great documentarist, uh, believed that you should not represent the Holocaust in fiction, in film. And he made an exception for the extraordinary Laszlo Nemesh film a few years ago, Son of Saul, the Hungarian film, which is absolutely extraordinary and, and you know, really rewrites the book on thinking about the Holocaust visually. Um, but, uh, yeah, I absolutely objected to the, the use of the Holocaust in both Shutter Island and in the X-Men films as a sort of, you know, backstory device, which seems to be, you know, completely 
inappropriate. You know, for that matter, I, I objected to it in Sophie's Choice, where, you know, the Holocaust seemed to have happened purely so that, you know, some young guy could become a great writer. And that really troubled me. Now, that's not necessarily the same as aestheticization, but what shocked me in the Malik film is this idea of, you know, the experience of war and the oppression of the Nazi era as some sort of, you know, road to, you know, transcendental, well, road to transcendence. Um, and, uh, yeah, it struck me as sort of somehow fundamentally inappropriate. And then, of course, you know, what Tarantino does in Inglorious Bastards is, is sort of something else again that's just kind of, you know, wish fulfillment. And, it, you know, in a way, those kind of wish fulfillment movies are kind of better because they have so little to do with the reality that they almost, you know, they almost don't count in that in that debate. I mean, it's very interesting to see movies that reference the Holocaust at all in Europe because the relationship in America is somewhat different. Uh, but they're always contested movies. I remember Europa Europa in seeing it in Berlin. And um, Agnieszka Holland has made now several Holocaust movies and that are specifically about the experience of World War II and specifically about Jews in World War II. And I think they're great. And of course, Lanzmann was always uh, um, just trashing her for doing it and for having the audacity to do it. Uh, especially since her mother was not Jewish, her father was. Um, yeah, for some reason, I'm clicking back to a couple of other films that just come to mind. Uh, one of them is, uh, both actually from last year, just in, in terms of speaking of a, of a genocidal hatred, <laughs> basically. One is Dead Souls, which I think the festival didn't really get enough credit for showing on its first day, which is probably just a programming necessity. But it's all about the, you know, it's it's about a period in history in China of forced camps and 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 um, you know very tough material. Some, I don't know, seven to eight hours long. Um, and then the other one that comes to mind is Black Klansman last year, which is a film that I I, I quite like. And it's interesting to see how different people try are trying to find ways into you know, grappling with these subjects. And in that case, he almost like split, see, he split the two in terms of it stylistically. Um, and, you know, he has a kind of almost poppy telling of an undercover story, you know, bookended um, by, you know, forays in, in, into the real and, and just kind of bring you to the present in, in an amazing way. Um, I wanted to kick it back to the talk about Parasite, particularly in the context of uh, shoplifters, which one the Palm last year, and I noticed a lot of similarities between the two, particularly regarding family and family as like a construct of mutual need. I'm curious what you guys noticed in terms of that, and also uh, since it seems like Parasite's a serious contender for the Palm this year, what what that would maybe mean? I, don't know. I, I think what it would mean would be that um, you know filmmakers like like Bong Ha. Bong, uh, you know, and other um, Korean, other Asian filmmakers, you know, if that film were to win, uh, it would mean that they could continue making Korean films if they want to and not have to necessarily go for those kind of, you know, crossover attempts that somehow fall flat. I mean, Park Chan-wook, another great Korean filmmaker and, and provocateur, um, who I think has sort of come unraveled with some of his uh work in the west um 
you know, and I I, I hope that would have a, a knock-on effect for um, Japanese filmmakers as well, because you know, if a Japanese filmmaker could could do something as audacious as Parasite, and a lot of uh, you know, a number of them certainly are, but if they could do it in the confidence that it's going to have a wider um, effect internationally, then you know, it could play a small part in in you know a sort of affirmation of you know the specific identity of, of Asian cinema, particularly Asian genre cinema. Yeah, I mean I, I believe that shoplifters actually did pretty well in, yeah, in, in the US. Very, very successful, yeah. yeah. Which is pretty pretty heartening. I don't I don't think that always happens for, for Pondor. Um, yeah. Well I think we covered a lot of ground. So we're we're all gonna run off now to see a movie in the director's fortnight, or at least a couple of us are. Uh, Alav Diaz. Four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. Oh, uh, there is a point here because actually there's a, a debate going on uh, on Twitter in the wake of Avengers Endgame about toilet breaks and you know when you should take a toilet break in this three-hour movie. Now, the, you know, the Avengers Endgame has a young audience and you know these are young bladders and they're worried about three hours and you know we're about to see a four and a half-hour movie. And Lav Diaz actually says, if you need to take a toilet break in my films, you can do it at any point. And one reason is you can walk out at any point knowing that by the time you're back in your seat, the person who started off somewhere way in the background of a shot will have probably made their way closer to the camera by then, but not necessarily. Uh, yeah, I can't beat that. On that <laughs> note, thank you, thank you, Mertan. Listen, thank you all of you. Thank you. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast was sponsored by Mubi. With Mubi, each and every film is hand selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Dive into Mubi's can takeover by heading to mubi.com/slash film comment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment to get three months for just $1 until May 25th. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Diamantino, winner of the grand prize at Cannes Critics Week and an official selection of the 56th New York Film Festival. This gonzo Portuguese comedy hits theaters starting May 24th. Ovid.tv has a collection of eight films by Chantal Ackerman, including her final film, No Home Movie. The Hollywood Reporter calls it unapologetically personal. Watch this moving and unflinching final testament from one of our greatest filmmakers on Ovid.tv today. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.